Hello, and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard. In this episode, we'll look at web apps and why it's so important to secure them, but also why that's so difficult to do. Our guest this week has direct experience of working with web applications as a CISO, as well as in Microsoft's Azure division. Prior to that, Alex Kryline worked for a number of US government agencies. He's now Vice President for Product Security at Qualys. Qualys, along with many other security vendors, produces regular reports setting out the key cybersecurity threats faced by organizations. One thing that stood out from the firm's 2023 Threat Landscape Year in Review was the number of high-impact vulnerabilities that affect web applications. It's around a third. And, as with so many threats, quite a lot of the risk comes from known vulnerabilities that should, by now, have been patched. First, though, I asked Alex how 2023 fared compared to other recent years that the Qualys research team has studied. I think 2023 was a year where we saw a lot more information about things that we have known are extremely common for some time, but that we've become much better at detecting and analyzing. I hesitate to say that any one year is any better or worse than any other. I think one of the large problems that organizations face is being able to find real information with which they can make decisions. And as platforms like Qualys and others in the market get better, and as reporting gets better, and as transparency gets better, and as collaboration gets better, we find out that we are much worse off than we likely thought that we may have been. Yeah, and we've seen a, a fairly steady uptick in the number of CVEs being disclosed year on year. But what is actually interesting, if we look at the graph and we will give it put a link in the description to the report if anyone wants to download it. But if you look at the 2023 statistics, it says 26,447 vulnerabilities were disclosed in 2023, which is 1,500 more than the previous year. But what's really interesting, if you look at that graph, is that it starts to jump up in 2017 and then grows quite steadily. And we don't see a massive increase during the pandemic years and then a drop off. We see that steady growth in the number of vulnerabilities. So until 2017, they were around about the 6,000 to 7,000 mark with a bit of variance year on year, some years better, some years worse. But then suddenly you get into those five figures. You suddenly get into almost 15,000, 16, 17, 18,000 up to the current 26,500 vulnerabilities. And that is a sort of steady but also quite worrying progress chart if you're a CISO and your task is to defend your network against this. So in context, why does Qualys think that's happening? Why do you as threat researchers think this is happening? I think there are a few interesting pieces of information that you brought through that maybe some context around problem spaces might help us understand. So while we have definitely seen a significant increase in the number of CVEs, I'm also really interested because we've seen a significant increase in the number of low complexity CVEs. So these are CVEs that do not require a significant amount of special skill or knowledge or ability to be able to develop. Um, and some of the exploitation attempts that we've seen also use, like, frankly, very 
elementary capabilities, um, such as like password stealing or cracking, um, to be able to gain access to like an FTP server, right? Uh, and then be able to export the data or redirect users to other sites. Um, and so we saw that in the Move It campaign. We've also seen um, significant other campaigns, such as uh, those in September of 2022, where we saw hundreds of thousands of users in East Asia redirected to adult-themed content sites. Right. Uh, we also saw with relation to Move It or Go Anywhere campaign, the CLOP cybercrime group, which is linked to high impact data theft that leverages this data theft and then also exfiltrates it. But when it does that, sends ransom notes to upper level executives and victims at the company, right? So we're now starting to see it tied to threats and intimidation. I think part of the reason why is because we now have this massive expanse of web applications where we may not have had those before. They serve all manner of both uh, business critical and non-critical functions in companies, um, and they're increasingly common, right? If we just think about our own history as a culture and a society, there's always an adoption curve on which tools are used. And now the tools that are most commonly used are web applications for us to do business. Whether those web applications are kind of internally hosted and manage like things like employee payroll or knowledge bases or content um, for uh, workers inside of the organization, or whether those web applications are part of a product and that product is sold to market or it's part of a customer experience like a banking application um, or a software as a service application, the expansion of those and the readily available the ready availability of those has never been higher before. And so I think that it's corresponding with a significant trend, both in the efficacy of attacks, as well as the broad expansion of the web application industry um, as part of our society and culture. And this is what we're driving towards when organizations say that they're facing, or the industry says we're facing a greater attack surface because and this has come up in previous programs quite often, but the the risks that we face go hand in hand with that increase in the use of this technology. So again, you know, we've moved to connected devices, we've moved to networks, that creates a risk. We've moved to web-based applications and doing things online, that creates a risk. We're moving to the Internet of Things. Inevitably, there will be risks there if there are not risks there already. But every time we add, make that technology pie bigger... In very, very simplistic terms, that gives the hackers more places they can bite away at the edges. I like a pie analogy. I, I do as well. And and I think one of one of the not to not to mix the metaphor, right? But um while we look at the pie analogy, we also might look at our bar graph analogies as well. Um we have not seen a significant change in the uh, common weaknesses and enumerations or the CWE top ten or even top 25 in years. When they make changes, it's in the rank order. We're not seeing a lot of new attack types being added, right? We, we know what the problems are. We just oftentimes are not effective at enabling them. I suspect that that is in part because we haven't done a very good job of making security part of our core business value, no matter who we are as an organization. Um, and oftentimes the tools are not particularly easy to use. And that makes it complex to make 
them efficacious. But this is part of why we've seen over 7,000 vulnerabilities that have proof of concept exploit code, right? If you look at the Qualys Threat Research Report, having a function like that in an organization like Qualys really helps us bring information to the market. 206 vulnerabilities had weaponized exploit code, and there were 115 vulnerabilities that were routinely exploited by threat actors. That's that's very significant because what that really helps us understand, right, is that there is a series of best practices that attackers are following that are successful. But because we know what those are and we understand how to control for them, we've also probably never had the opportunity to be more effective in the way that we protect our organizations than we are today. And, and as I say, listeners can download this and go through it because it's actually quite nicely laid out and you can see uh, in graphical form some of the breakdown of what we're talking about. But just to jump on a couple of points there, um, one that stands out is that only a relatively small number of those 27,000 attacks are actually, or vulnerabilities rather, are high risk. In fact, it's it's less than 1% are high risk. So that's one thought to keep in mind. Um, the other is the time to exploit. And it's about halfway down the report that you talk about a three-week window. So 75% of vulnerabilities were exploited within 19 days or approximately three weeks of publication. That's the timeline that security researchers and people trying to protect networks and infrastructure need to be acting. And those two things together, it suggests that actually a lot of that 27,000 could potentially be disregarded. And we need to focus our attention on that 1% and within that time window the problem is identifying where that 1% is, isn't it? Right. Because it's really a problem of the signal-to-noise ratio more than it's a problem of almost anything else. It is very difficult. As somebody who runs our application security programs at Qualys, I'll tell you from firsthand experience, both here and working elsewhere as a veteran in our industry, it's really complex to be able to find... It's not a needle in a haystack. It's a needle in a tornado. Right. The more and more releases that uh, developers have at increasingly higher velocity, because we've become very effective as a society of building and then shipping code, the less control we have to be able to find issues that are subtle and complex. And though that intersection of issues that are subtle and complex are are the ideal target temptation for attackers. So like as an example, um, we see attackers who are constantly breaking in as opposed to building zero days, right? And part of this is because we often misconfigure web applications or misconfigure APIs or don't take the best practices that are required to be able to sanitize inputs or use the right types of forms uh, for calls and responses. Those are, those are technical control problems that can be addressed, right? But realistically, what you're bringing forward is that we have a real problem understanding what is vulnerable versus what is exploitable. Purely having a CVE does not actually create risk. It creates a context that helps people understand whether or not they have risk. What it fails to understand is whether or not the conditions are met where that CVE can be exploited. If there is a known exploit to that CVE, if it's been observed in use, 
um, for exploitation by a campaign of threat actors. That data doesn't find itself in just a scoring system. Right? That finds itself in a programmatic way to manage risk, which is one of the reasons why no one product can help you solve a problem. You have to build a system that helps you rise to the level of your goals and not fail to the level of your capabilities, paraphrasing James Clear from Atomic Habits. It's a very interesting way of breaking it down, actually, a very useful way of breaking it down as well. But if we were to subtract from within the data that we have even further. We've we've got in your report, 33% of high-risk vulnerabilities impact network devices and web apps, and those potentially are a problem. Now, we're talking about there, a third of 1%, but that third of 1% doesn't matter if that's your transactional system, if that's the only way that citizens can interact with a government department, if it's only the way, the only way that someone can call up a medical record. Uh, these things, again, it depends, as when you talk about risk, it depends on the criticality of the system as well as how nasty the vulnerability is or how easy it is to exploit. That's right. Yeah, and, and I think... I think this is actually, if I can interject, this is part of this is part of the challenge with also like how organizations get set up to be able to test and evaluate for these things, right? When when we look at like a typical organization, um, like when we when we discuss with our our large base of customers how they run their businesses, what we oftentimes find is is a is a couple of very common patterns that are distributed across a very simple maturity model. Um, what's most common is that there are some people at a company, sometimes in engineering, sometimes in security, who launch periodic scans, right? Sometimes they will also look at code um, as it's being developed. Uh, and maybe there's a program that focuses a lot on static application security testing or software composition analysis uh, to determine proprietary first-party code or third-party code risk exposure. And that's really helpful. But what that won't tell you is where is that application being deployed? On what infrastructure? How is it faced to the internet? Is it accessible? Is it a backend service? Is it deployed on an infrastructure that also has another corresponding CVE that may increase the risk? Right? These are the complex sets of questions that organizations have to deal with if they want to de-risk their business in a way that addresses not chasing vulnerabilities, but rather addressing business concerns, right? In order to do that, you cannot just rely on a particular single tool. You have to work in building a system, a system that provides feedback from web application security um, that focuses on dynamic analysis, static analysis, composition analysis, but then also helps you target to the actual asset, right? Building an inventory of both infrastructure, software, APIs, and helping to get very specific to say, hey, this application security vulnerability exists on a business critical service that is facing the internet, which is residing on an infrastructure that also has vulnerabilities that may allow for initial access and exploitation, either via the web app or the operating system or the infrastructure configuration itself. All of that has to come together to make a risk-informed decision. 
And it's very rare that organizations can do that without partnering with providers who have specific breadth of domain experience to be able to attack the problem. In fact, they may well need assistance from different quarters indeed. But do organizations actually know how many web applications they've got? And we were talking a bit about this before we went on air and trying to work out what the definition of a web application is. And by all means, try that at home, put it into a browser and see what comes back, because actually it, it, it's not as clearly defined as, as certainly I thought. There are several definitions out there. But the numbers, from what analysts say, is it's in the thousands, whether it's in the tens of thousands or whether it's in the thousands or maybe in the hundreds. But it's safe to say that the majority of enterprises are going to have at least a few hundred web applications, however defined. There will also be APIs and there will also be application interfaces set up that allow people to get into conventional locally hosted on-premises applications via some form of web interface. So if you extend that out further, and we saw a lot of those being set up during lockdown as people couldn't get into the office. But if CISOs don't know where all these applications are, and if business units are able to spin them up using cloud services very easily or connect things together using APIs, how do they start to actually understand where they are vulnerable and where those risks are? Stephen, this is precisely why the Center for Internet Security has identified the first of its top 10 controls as, well, the first two, right, as identify all infrastructure and identify all software, right? You, you can't do anything else until you've done that. Rather, you can't do anything else at precision and scale. So um, those are not just things that are important that we should work on, those are the foundational elements of running any cybersecurity program. Um, once you've identified what you have, then you can take further action. But the first problem is to be able to use a system to continuously monitor and detect against changes. Because it's one thing to have an asset inventory, but it's another thing to make that real and to have it consistently updated and to have it done in a way that is programmatic so that it doesn't require human intervention. In fact, we would, we would probably tell, we would probably tell any customer that the only way that they would be able to really run an effective security program is to be able to continuously automate the detection of new assets, whether those assets are APIs, um, which oftentimes get overlooked, whether they are, what developers might call a, it's just a backend service. It's not a web application, but then you find out that that backend service has you know super user control to everything. So it becomes very important, even if it's not a product. Um, to new microservices uh, or monolithic applications, um, the way that organizations do that effectively is by using dynamic application security testing tools like Qualys Web Application Security, because they help organizations be able to scan both externally um, for uh, organizations using tools in the market of external attack service management to help them see what attackers see, to using them um, for asset management uh, to be able to get an internal view of what's available, to just scanning the uh, interior and perimeter of their network infrastructure um, and application space with dynamic testing tools. So there is, there are known ways to address this at scale uh, through automation, 
but they really require dedication and focus in order to be able to then take that data and then use it as a part of a risk management approach. You see, because most of the people in organizations who focus on inventory oftentimes don't work in the application security division or department. And that that reality makes it complex to get high utility out of um, an asset inventory list, right? Because you need the asset inventory list to actually be useful to your application security teams and your developers. And you can only do that if you put it as part of a system of how products work together. And how much potentially are we being impacted by the move towards Kubernetes and these devices, technologies that are originally intended to be stateless, but they are they are changing in, in that sense as well. So they're now starting to process their own data and host their own data. And again, the idea of these ephemeral, can we use that word for an application? You know, an application that can be there and disappear very, very quickly before you've even had a chance to really understand how it interfaces with the rest of your security systems. What do you see that as, how do you see that impacting the, the problems we face? Very, very excited to talk about this part of the part of the ecosystem with you. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I'm a passionate uh a Kubernetes user. Um, I, I had the fortunate opportunity of being introduced to this years ago um, when the projects were not necessarily nascent, but not as mature as they are today. Uh, and, and my own lived experience on this um, shows both benefits and attractions to the use of Kubernetes or K8s as we call it um, in, in environments or systems where you're processing uh, production data or personally identifiable information. Look, there are benefits and detractions. Let me lay out the benefits for a second. We as security, we would really want distributed, immutable and ephemeral systems to be used to support our businesses because if something is immutable, I can write rules on it and I can have not necessarily a guarantee, but a high level of confidence that the rules that I wrote are what are, 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 what are governing the production environment. Right? I also want a distributed system because I want it to be resistant to exploitation such as denial of service attacks um, or, or other volumetric attacks that would make it so my application might be unavailable. And I want it to be ephemeral because the more ephemeral my code is, the less persistence attackers have. So it's good that we're making a move to distributed immutable and ephemeral systems like Kubernetes and others. Um, but there are detractions. And some of those detractions are, it's a totally different world. It makes it is not the same on any level as um, as what people are used to doing with web applications. These things, to your point, are not stateful, right? We need to manage policies, not just on the application, but on the pod, on the networking, on the communication of the fabric, on how the stack operates. It requires specific tools that uh, give visibility and alerting and detections. They have certain patterns, such as sidecar patterns and others that don't, um, that don't make sense outside of a Kubernetes environment. So we are increasing the complexity. I don't think that we are necessarily increasing 
the vulnerability. I think that the way that we're increasing the risk is because we oftentimes lack the knowledge, skill, and ability to understand how to manage that problem in a differently complex space. And under pressure of time, because again, organizations want to deploy quickly. And that that comes back to that point of not building the security in at an early enough stage. Exactly. Talk to talk to most product managers and their first question is, well, why can't we meet the release deadline? As opposed to, well, what's the risk of moving forward? Right. Uh, and if you and if you speak with if you speak with a lot of business owners, right, because we know that between two and five percent of vulnerabilities have known exploitations, at least according to the uh, first.org project around um, exploit prediction scoring system. If we take that and posit that as, as, as a truth, then the next question is, okay, well, if it's only two to 5%, then why are you holding up my release, right? Because now you're wasting 90, 98 to 95% of my time by asking me to patch things that are not actual problems. So the goal that we have at Qualys is to help customers increase the precision of their risk decision-making so that they're, they're reducing the friction that security can cause unnecessarily while still being able to address the attack surface that increases risk to consumers, to governments, to businesses, um, and just the lives of everyday average people. So in simple terms, it's helping people to identify those weak points where the attacker might be able to get in rather than simply saying there are more attacks out there. Yeah, it doesn't like if, if you're purely taking a CVSS driven model and using that as your context for managing an enterprise, you will fail. And the reason why you will fail is because the signal to noise ratio is not working in your favor. You lack the understanding to be able to make effective decisions at scale. Um, and you are not putting risk management ahead of, uh, of frankly, ahead of compliance, right? Um, or ahead of previous thinking. Uh, instead, what you're doing is just extending what an automated tool will tell you without the context of what your organization needs. Or indeed what you need to do to reduce that risk. Yeah, because the ultimate goal of any good application security program should be to prevent issues from becoming incidents, right? But one way that you can fail to do that is by not understanding the difference between what is urgent and what is important. Alex Kryline from Qualys on why it's about discovering where the real weak points in security are and the need to focus on risk management rather than lists of CVEs or technical vulnerabilities. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. Our next programme will look at some new guidance for businesses from the UK's National Centre for Cybersecurity. That will be live on Thursday the 8th of February, and I hope you can join us then. Meanwhile, you can, of course, catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, or subscribe and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening. Security Insights is written and presented by Stephen Pritchard and is a production by ENS Media. 
For more information, visit us at www.ensmedia.co.uk forward slash podcasting.